0: Welcome to The Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Patton Oswalt is an Emmy and Grammy Award-winning comedian, writer, actor, and producer. In this episode, Patton speaks about growing up in a military family in Northern Virginia before finding his way to an open mic night during a college summer and falling in love with the world of comedy. This would eventually lead to multiple Netflix stand-up specials, film, and television roles, even voicing the main character of Remy in Pixar's Ratatouille. Patton also speaks revealingly about the tragedy that beset his family when his wife died tragically in 2016, leaving Patton with the impossible task of informing their daughter the next day, using the guidance of their elementary school. Patton describes not only the difficulty of this period, but also his daughter's resilience and his own rediscovery of joy. Patton Oswalt on comedy, grief, and fatherhood. This is The Supporting Cast. Oswald, welcome to supporting cast thanks for having me on man it's our pleasure first question is always about the present grounding us in the present tell me about your day today what's going on today in the life of Patton Oswald
1: uh woke up at six got Alice my, my daughter Alice breakfast took her to LAX put her on a plane to Chicago she's gonna go hang with her cousins for a week mm. and so that has been my morning it is now noon I have been to the airport and back Oof. um at, yeah. I read this Wednesday's new comic books and now got a bunch of work the rest of the day. That's my day so far.
0: Got it. How was the traffic at LAX? Was it okay?
1: It, uh, it wasn't bad. I, I was a little worried because of the rain, but when I got there, LAX was relatively calm. And so I guess I lucked out.
0: So I know that you're performing here and there. I was at Largo last week, and I know you're going to be there in a couple of weeks. And tell me about kind of right now in terms of you've had several big Netflix specials. I assume now you're maybe working on your next one, trying out material. Can you talk about kind of where you are in the creative process of working toward your next hour or hour and a half or however it works?
1: Well, I, I really live by the advice of Chris Rock, who said when you put out an album or special as, as a comedian, You put out an album or special, that material's gone, and you have to then start working on your new hour. So mine came out late last year, and now I'm just doing smaller sets and working on the new hour because I don't want people coming to see me and then they're like, well, I just saw that on his special, and now he's repeating it. It it really starts to weaken your fan base because they get it into their heads and they're not wrong. Like, well, if that's all that guy does, I've already seen it. Why am I paying for that? And weirdly enough, you know, my friends who are musicians, it's the exact opposite. If you put out an album and you go on tour, you had better perform that album. That's what they want to hear. They don't want to hear your new stuff. So it's weird how comedians and musicians sort of live at opposite ends of the spectrum.
0: Do you kind of appreciate that, though, that it kind of forces you to re-examine your craft, to look around your life for inspiration, that it kind of keeps you fresh in a way?
1: It definitely makes you be more aware and present in your everyday life and you're not going to get any material reading comments and reviews about the stuff you've already done that stuff's already done you have to think about what the next thing is and that means going out and just living life and being present in life
0: well part of your life includes uh, i want to mention a being married to a westlake alumna uh, and also being a, a harvard westlake dad so i'm curious about the inspiration you find from home being the parent of a middle schooler, being a husband of a Westlake alum. What's the type of inspiration you get from them? And how do you kind of craft that into a set?
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't try to talk too much about my daughter, especially now that she's in seventh grade. I don't want her to constantly be a source of material for me. I would like her to be able to kind of live outside of any kind of scrutiny or spotlight. I think she deserves that. Yeah. Um, every now and then though, she will say something kind of brilliant that I can't not comment on, but that I do got to go, oh, man, that's so good. Let me talk about that. And and then also just, you know, raising a kid and going through all the stages of, you know, kindergarten and elementary school and now middle school, and I'm sure high school is coming, you get to see how people, even though they can fundamentally change, there are still basic aspects of their personality, a lot of which you can see when they're infants that then just evolve and adapt themselves to whatever situation that they're in now. And you see the moments when they choose to grow and resist growth. I think a lot of comedy comes from people. A lot of the funny things that I've done in life is because I am absolutely 100% sure that I'm correct and I'm not correct and I will not admit that I'm not correct and I I don't know what I'm doing and I won't admit that I don't know what I'm doing. And so that to me is just, that, that will always be a wonderful source of comedy for me.
0: Yeah. You mentioned in one of your recent specials that there was a man in your backyard and you didn't know why. (laughs) And you thought that they were breaking in and it was your wife that went and confronted him. And and I guess the punchline of the story is
1: Um, he was a sub poor guy. He was a subcontractor (laughs) who had come to fix the air conditioning and they our contractor had given him all the information, but he didn't tell us he was coming. So the guy had our gate codes and then just kind of walked, walked in innocently, you know, being told, go to this house, fix your air conditioner. And then he's confronted by my wife holding a pink aluminum baseball bat and me behind her trying to defuse the situation. And I'm just like, oh, this that this guy, that was not on his. um, that, if, if he's a bullet journalist, uh, that is not part of his bullet journal that morning was be threatened by a Valkyrie with a baseball bat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so when you're kind of translating that story to the stage when you're working that out at smaller clubs before you bring it to a Netflix uh, special are you kind of trying to figure out the right way to word it are you feeling how the crowd responds to how you tell the story do you change it based on oh wow when I took that sort of pregnant pause uh that really worked that sort of thing
1: there was a laughter that I didn't know was there yeah for me I'm not the kind of comedian and and sometimes I wish I was because I have friends who can do this I'm not the kind of comedian who can sit down and write his stuff out and then perform it i have to go up night after night at little clubs and showcase nights at the comedy store and on um, the improv and stuff like that and 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 work it out kind of verbally because it has to sound it has to sound conversational and it has to sound inspirational as if i'm getting the thought in the moment that's the best way for me to perform it and so I, it's, it's hard for me sometimes to sit down and write jokes and then say the joke and then adjust it it just comes for me and then the stuff that really works i just have the capacity to remember how it goes i remember it's a sense memory of realizing oh that's when it clicked and it clicked like this so let's go like that
0: what about the kind of evolving tastes of the audience and there's some people argue it's never been harder to be a comedian because as language evolves certain language that you might have used 10 or 20 years ago is now maybe for good reason language that you shouldn't use today How do you as a comedian sort of feel about that, and does that force you into a corner in good ways? Um, Do you sometimes lament that you can't be as free with how you speak as you were?
1: No. uh, Having restrictions as a comedian is the best because the best comedians find brilliant ways around those restrictions and in Mm. a way can get even darker and more edgier. (laughs) And all this nonsense about it's really hard to be a comedian today— I'm sorry, I don't have any sympathy for you. Lenny Bruce used to get arrested. George Carlin <laughs> used to get arrested. Right. Richard Pryor, you know, got fired from Vegas. Like, th- this is this is the best time to be doing comedy, just because there's like four or five things you can't. By the way, you can still say anything. You just got to find a, cl- a clever way to say it. You mm. can't just the people that are that are angry about it, you can't say anything. It's like Michael Che gets away with brilliance every single week on SNL. On on a uh...
0: update. Yeah.
1: There's podcasts that get away with amazing things because they're clever and brilliant in, in the way that they do it. So, you know, people that are like, you can't say anything anymore. Well, be better at saying that you can get away with. You can't believe what you could get away with. You're just not that talented. That's what you're angry about.
0: <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, we're all trying to be more empathetic to each other. And I mean, me who works yeah. at a school. Our language evolves in a school because we're trying to be sensitive to the kids
1: who. La- have, language evolves, period. It has yeah. always evolved. It will keep evolving. Stuff that you and I are saying now that we're not even thinking about will seem archaic or clunky or offensive down the road. And you friggin' roll with it. That's the beauty of the English language. It constantly evolves. Were people angry during Shakespeare's time because he made up words like torture and eyeball and vomit? that didn't exist until he made them up. They're like, well, I'm sorry, but in my day, we, that's not what we called erectation. Well, he just made up a really cool word called vomit, and it works, and we're going to use it. <laughs> we're going to roll with that because it's good. It works. The word dropout didn't exist until the late 50s, and then the OED added it because they are like, that new word just did its job. Great. Let's use it.
0: Well, now that we're going back to you know Shakespeare's time and the origins of comedy, I want to get to your origins, <laughs> Patton. Uh you grew up a military brat. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Daddy was a Marine moved around a lot when I was really little. But by the time I got to high school, this is actually astounding of him, because he was a test pilot. and He decided, well, he grew up very nomadic with his dad, being in the army. And he was like, I don't want that life for my kids. I'd want them to actually be able to, you know, put down roots and build a circle of friends and, you know, build a rep wherever they're growing up. So he took a test job in DC and stop being a test pilot so that we could have a good, a normal, a relatively normal upbringing. And, you know, that was amazing.
0: And you, Patton, you were named after General Patton.
1: Is that right? Yeah. My my dad had high hopes.
0: (laughs) Did you ever consider going into the military and follow, I guess, your father and your grandfather's
1: footsteps? My grandfather went into the military because it was a way out of his life. He was, you know, growing up poor in Ohio, and it was a way that it got him the world. So, because it rescued him, he thought of the military as a gift to my dad. My dad, having done three tours in Vietnam, saw for him the military was an onus and kind of a curse and kind of a trap. Mm-hmm. and he I remember him very, very vividly saying, "You and you and your brother will never join the military or go to war if I have anything to say about it because of what he saw. you know the I think the people that again it, it it's such a cliche, but The people that have actually seen hard combat are the people that will do anything to stop a war happening. And the people, it's usually the the loudest warmongers and the people that have never held a rifle or stood a post. You know, those are the ones who are like, we got to get out there and be men. Like, (laughs) actually, we don't. How about we talk this out?
0: Was there anything about your upbringing that reflected kind of a military culture? Was your father or your, your mother strict?
1: They were as strict as parents could be in the 70s and 80s. But unfortunately, it was also that time of, I don't even say unfortunately, but they were trying to adjust to, that was the era of free to be you and me and Dr. Spock and, you know, be more open with your kids. So, yeah, there were some strictness to them. I mean, they were very square people, but I appreciate them being square because they gave me that nice, quiet foundation. Whereas a lot of my friends who had the groovy, hippie parents now have grown up to be squares because they are recreating a childhood that they never had, which mm. is stability. And, you know, they had fun parents, but but fun parents can be kind of scary.
0: And then when you finally settled, you were in Northern Virginia, it sounds like, right?
1: Yeah, we uh, grew up in, in Sterling, Virginia, uh, northern, the, the, the bland Northern Virginia suburbs.
0: And what kind of schooling? Did you go to public school, private school?
1: Public, I mean, I went to, where, where I grew up, it was, where'd you go to elementary school? Uh, at the elementary school, at the <laughs> yeah. one elementary school. And then we went to the one high school, you know, that, that was, that's how I grew up. I grew up at that very 80s thing.
0: And at your high school, were there teachers that inspired you? I mean, you're, a, you're not only a performer, you're a writer. Were there yeah. teachers that supported you?
1: Yeah, there There was a combination of teachers. There was like, a, you know, this guy, uh, Ron Richards, who I still keep in touch with, he was my AP history teacher, and he really... Taught me uh, without knowing he was doing it, but he taught me like I don't I don't want to say comedic thinking, but just like questioning things in a in a very lighthearted way, or like l- looking at the language of official statements or government press releases, or even the way that stuff was reported in the Washington Post or the New York Times, and like look at the language they're using. What if is there? It was it was it was like a, it was like a suburban version of Noam Chomsky, and he very much helped to like widen my head that way. And then there were other people that I had a shop teacher named David Wright, who unfortunately has passed away, who it wasn't that he imparted any specific wisdom, just the way he lived his life, his character, his, he was such a weirdo, but I love that he was just so comfortably, unabashedly himself. That had a massive influence on me. And then also I had this, this is kind of a bummer, but our vice principal in high school was this really interesting kind of dark guy who sadly ended up taking his own life. I think 10 years after I graduated, but we would have these weird conversations about like, he would just go, there's a book called Population 1280 by Jim Thompson. And you seem like the kind of person that would find it awesome. You should definitely give it a, like these weird, like he was like smuggling cool stuff into me. Like I see that you're wearing a repo man t-shirt. So I'm betting that you would like this movie. It was like, he could key off of things really interesting. And I remember one time I was in the newspaper office Uh, after school one day in the supplemental building and we're trying to put the thing together and then down the hall, I heard bagpipes playing. And I went down the hall and in the metal shop, the vice principal was alone, just playing the bagpipes. And I was like, I didn't know you played the bagpipes. (laughs) And he goes, someone has to, like, he just had this really cool, him and the shop teacher, David Wright, were early indications that, oh, adults are still searching there. Some Mm -hmm. adults have, have calcified and just stopped. But other adults that you think are well, because a lot of times I saw in my mind that teacher has always been at that school. Like it might like that teacher grew out of the floor, and that's all they are. Right. And and to get that indication of like no, there's they've got lives outside of this too, and they're just as confused and <laughs> and concerned about it as you are. And a lot of them don't have answers. And to be brave enough and secure enough to present that to a kid, I think is very valuable.
0: It's interesting to compare that to your father, who said. You know that he was a little bit stuck in the military career and then you have these other kind of yep. adult figures who are still searching and did you find yourself sort of veering toward i think i want to be in a career that where i'm kind of a more creative career
1: it definitely i was always drawn to the creative career and, and it wasn't until college i think Yates said this or some poet was talking about the idea of there are lunar professions and solar professions mm. some people are naturally drawn to the solar professions banking accounting and some people are drawn to the lunar professions and it doesn't say anything bad about either person. You just have to go where you fit. And it, I just knew very early on that I belonged in the lunar professions, that my temperament and my, I hate to use the word bodily humor like I'm an ancient Greek, but I just think the way my molecules are arranged, I, I do better in the lunar world. You know, it, it's that classic thing of like there are so many. Yes, there are a lot of accountants that actually should be ballerinas, would be happy to be ballerinas, but. There's also a lot of ballerinas that would actually be happier to be accountants right and you have to really figure out who you are and i think that that's really as much as educating yourself and getting good grades interact with as many people as you can and figure out who you are as best you can it will save you so much hassle down the road
0: how do you handle that as a parent i mean now you're in a i guess a lunar Career and you're raising a daughter and she's looking at you going do I want to be uh, Which way do I want to go? How, well, how do you handle that?
1: I don't want to be one of those parents That's I'm very much into stuff You know science fiction Star Wars pop culture, yeah. but I'm not one of those Nerd dads who acts like a jock dad like you're gonna sit down and watch all the Star Wars movies and like <laughs> if you're drawn to it, you're drawn to it. If you're not we don't need to like and I'm also very loose right now because I remember how I was in the in the seventh grade, especially I tried playing ukulele, didn't really click with her. Now she's doing piano. It's clicking now, might not click. And if few. like, these are the years you're supposed to try a bunch of stuff and not feel judged or down on yourself. If you try a bunch of stuff and it's like, ah, this, this isn't for me. But I tried it. I mean, uh, up through college, the, the 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 summer that I became a fan of comedian, I was doing like eight or nine different jobs. That, that was that first summer I was like, I better start figuring out what to do with my life and I tried a bunch of things and none of them clicked. And some of them could have been profitable careers if I'd applied myself and I'm like, I don't, it's not even that I hate this job, I don't care about it either way. Like like if I came to this job and, and I got a paycheck, fine, but if for one day they fired me for no reason, I wouldn't even fight to keep it. And I don't think that's a good way to look at your profession. And And that was the summer that I first went up this summer of 88, I went up and did my first open mic and just ate it, bombed, (laughs) hot, death, burning shrapnel. And I was like, I love this so much. I just want to do this. I I love the hang. I love the lifestyle. I love the people that do it. I love the hours. And and, and this was something that didn't give me any positive reinforcement. For probably the first two years, I did it. And it just kept coming back. So I'm like, well, this is for me.
0: And what gave you the confidence, I guess, outside of the open mics? Had you been a, a funny guy in high school? Did you like the feedback of the laughter of your friends or people in the class?
1: Yeah, I mean, but I wasn't the class clown. I, I, yeah. I always don't like the term the class clown. There's never a class clown. There's a, there's a comedy clique. There's a always a chunk of kids. For some reason, they just respond to comedy. And my group, my peer group, my little gang was... We could recite Monty Python and we could Mm. recite Sam Kinison or Robin Williams and old SNL sketches and do like we were just in. That was our thing. And I was the one guy dumb enough to make it a vocation. So (laughs) there you go.
0: Did you ever connect that? I'm curious about the history teacher and the emphasis on language and looking at uh, newspapers and so forth. Did you connect at the time this appreciation for comedy and the appreciation for language? Did you see how the mathematics of that worked?
1: Not at the time. It wasn't, again, it, it, it was hard to connect at the time because I was just a fan of comedy. Yeah. I was just downloading it. I wasn't uploading it into the world. And then I was also downloading, I guess, the critical reading that I was doing in order to get a good grade. It wasn't until years <laughs> later that I was like, oh, the way that he had me look at a newspaper op-ed or what a politician or, you know, whomever on TV or talking head is saying something. Actually, is crucial, and there are hidden meanings in that. But I didn't realize that until I started practicing comedy. Once once you start doing that, you realize, oh yeah, that's actually connected. It was the same way when I was doing debate and forensics in high school that I realized years later, oh, that actually helped me be a better comedian Mm -hmm. because you got to get your point across quick. Right. You go up on stage like I got to win these people over. I can't go all right. I need to talk to you for a while. No, man, we paid our money. Let's get going. You know, (laughs) click with me. (laughs) This is my night out.
0: So the decision to go to, to William and Mary and your experience there, the was the summer that you finally did your first open mic, was that in college?
1: Yes, it was between freshman and sophomore year of college. Mm. I was back home up in up in DC and um started doing open mics and it was like, oh, this is this is it. I found it. Got it. <laughs> you know it when you find it. But again, that's why I always encourage people, try as many different things as you can and be totally cool about. Tried it, not for me. Tried it, not for me. But when you find something you like, you then you do have to apply yourself. But don't apply yourself for the sake of applying yourself. Like, well, I started this. I got to finish it. Like, sometimes you start something and you know immediately, like, oh, this, okay, not for me, and that's fine. Because I just, I've just seen a lot of people. I've met a lot of people that they clearly started something in sixth or seventh grade, and their parents just go, okay, that's it, And, and you stay with this. And they didn't let them like do a bunch of things. And I I'm not that I'm not that worried if my daughter's kind of just casting around because she's trying to figure out what's your thing. And a lot of times you don't find your thing immediately.
0: No. And 7th grade middle school is the time to do that, you know. I mean, you yeah. can you can say your exactly. whole life is the
1: time to do that, but 7th well, grade Well, by the particular. way, your whole life also can be time to do that. There's people they don't yeah. figure out what the hell they want to do until they're in their 50s. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're allowed to you're allowed to try different things. And you're also allowed to politely go, "Gave it a run?" Gave it my best, not for me.
0: I'm curious, you said you liked The Hang, uh, meaning I think you liked the peer group that surrounded yes. sort of the comedy. Were there people back then who even though you were bombing, you felt like supported you, gave you some encouragement to go, you know, I, I'm bombing for the first couple of years, but there's something here.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I started out, it was it was like um, this guy Blaine Capach, who I'm still really good friends with, um, who I was roommates with in San Francisco years later. Another guy named mark voice who I was roommates with in baltimore they had like the best attitude about this is what we do this is you know comedy we're in it i remember one time i was we're, we're waiting to go on at an open mic on a tuesday it was way past midnight and i looked over at mark and went, hey what time is it man he goes it's a million o'clock and it was it was a million o'clock that is how we were going to wait that long to get on stage also I remember like dave Chappelle was hanging out he's 14. his first open mic was the same night as my first open mic Really? um, Yeah. So it was that kind of like, oh, they're all and people who had like the right attitude about comedy, which wasn't I want to get a clean five, go on The Tonight Show and then get a sitcom. They're like, no, no, I want to just do this. I want to be the best at this.
0: So you and Chappelle were on the same stage the same night?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Garvin's Comedy Club in 1988.
0: Wow. And what was your impression of him then? Did he have a smoother start than you?
1: He he looked like he had been doing comedy for 30 years. He was 14 <laughs> years old. He was so God. solid. Just It was one of those things like, and I just, I was not in the business. And even then I was like, well, that guy's going to be a huge star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So in college, what did you study and were there professors there? What In terms of your academic experience, was there anything influential to you at William & Mary?
1: College was a little weird for me. Well, this might be some bad advice for kids that are going to college. For, college for me got a little difficult because by the time sophomore year ended, I just knew I wanted to be a comedian. That's all I wanted to do. And my weekends were spent. Everyone's was like, your college experience must be crazy. It's like, uh, no, I went to classes during the week. And then Friday afternoon, I'd get in my car and go out and do a gig or, go, you know, go to a club over the weekend and try to um, get stage time. That's kind of all I cared about. So there was a lot of, um, like, I knew – I had that, I know what I want to do. And there were even some advisors at my college that were like, you should be enjoying your college years and hanging out. am like, no, 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 my my enjoyment comes from driving six hours down to Raleigh, North Carolina to go to Charlie Goodnight's and, and, and hope maybe get on. And even if I don't get on, I'm, I'm gonna watch the show and I'm gonna either learn what I love or learn what I never want to do. Both of those are valuable.
0: And so after college, did you spend a lot of time traveling the country or did you settle somewhere and kind of cut your teeth in a a big market somewhere?
1: I moved to Baltimore and then I realized, wait a minute, I need to move west because the comedy scene out there was dying. So from probably November of 91 until May of 92, I moved back in with my parents, spent no money, just saved up every dime I could. And then in May, I drove across country to San Francisco. I had saved up like 700 bucks and I drove across country. And right before I got to sale in Truckee, my water pump dropped out of my car and it cost me 700 bucks to repair it. So I told them that San Francisco broke and I spent a couple years sleeping on couches and floors. But at the time, and this isn't how San Francisco is now, but in 1992, you could live in San Francisco really cheap and you mm. could go on stage every night every night
0: and the comedy scene there was probably thriving in the early 90s is that right Oh, it was,
1: in the early 90s it was amazing and and the people that were coming through janine garofalo margaret cho dana gould greg proops brian possein who i became roommates with all these people that just became an even better peer group because I had gotten very good at doing comedy you know road style i could do it was very hacky but i knew how to win over an audience but in san francisco you really had to have some genuinely original content and the fact that i had to like i remember i like tore all the pages out of my notebook after my first night in san francisco and said i'm going to start from zero now because none of this road stuff's going to fly here
0: when you're watching other comedians every night is it hard not to sort of well, you're just steal, but to be kind of influenced by other people's style uh, while still trying to kind of maintain your own voice?
1: I'm more worried. I'm not even so much worried about stealing material. I'm worried about aping someone else's vocal mannerisms and inflections. Right. Because when somebody really, really has a way of talking, that will start to infect how you speak on stage. So there have been people on my way up, you know, people like Dana Gould and, and David Tell, especially. I had to, like, oh, God, I got to really not talk like that person, you know. My material has always been kind of very personal, so it's not like I'm worried about feeling a joke. I'm more like, how am I going to tell this story and make it click? Uh, and, and how do I keep it in my voice?
0: Were there people in the San Francisco scene that you feel like were mentors to you or influential to you on a kind of deeper level?
1: At that point, it wasn't so much that I had mentors anymore. I had a group of friends that I hung out with all the time, and we would just bounce jokes off each other and it would make us funnier. So it wasn't like I had an older mentor going, here is the way. I had something even better. I had a peer group that were all everyone was willing to call each other. If you would do a joke and it just wasn't good, you're like, what? what are you doing? What are you doing? That is so valuable to have people that will call you out when you're being lazy.
0: The first time I feel like I heard your name was I was watching Robin Williams on Inside the Actor's Studio, and I believe Ooh. he said your name. Oh uh, my lord. I I believe so, I, and I could be wrong, Um, and he's a San Francisco comedian, that's why it clung to mind. I don't oh, know if yeah. he was someone that would, would dip into the San Francisco scene every once in a while. Oh,
1: he would that. show up and do surprise sets, and it was always incredible. He would just drop yeah. in and just start talking about whatever was on his mind, and, and it was just, he was a fascinating guy. That's, he's one of those guys that I will always, myths like he's one of those guys he's up there in, in my mind with people like Bill hicks and, and molly has haskins molly haskell molly yeah. Ivins. oh my god where i'm like uh, an event will happen now i'm like well, what would they have thought of this why aren't they here to write about this yeah you know i would love to get their take on the world now it would be really fascinating
0: and so after san francisco you migrated down to la or did were there other stops in between
1: No, after San Francisco, I was there from 92 to 93. No, 92 to 95. And then I got a job writing on a sketch show called Man TV. And that brought me down to L.A. Because unfortunately, by that point, most of the comedy clubs in San Francisco had closed. There was a huge comedy boom in the mid-80s. And I got into comedy in the late 80s as the boom was ending. by the time (laughs) I started going, everything was closing and I had to keep move, 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 move. It brought me down to L.A.
0: And when did the voice acting start? I mean, you are maybe best known. You were the voice of Remy in Ratatouille, which was a gigantic hit.
1: I can't remember. I mean, I think it was, I was doing sets in LA and I do, I don't do impressions, but I do voices, character stuff. And someone heard me went, hey, we'll bring you in for this. And then once you do one voice acting job, it's a very small connected world. And then you just start getting more and more jobs. And then, and then, Ratatouille happened because they couldn't find the actor for the rat. And Brad Bird, according to him, was driving around one night listening to satellite radio. And they, he was listening to one of the comedy channels. And they played one of my bits. And he was like, oh, that's the rat. That's the guy. And he apparently did a pencil test of Remy doing my bit that he showed to the Disney people. And they went, okay. But actually, the first, the Disney people wow, like, is he going to be cursing like that? They're like, no, no, no. That's just his <laughs> bit. That's not the script. I just wanted to see how he's... so." thank god
0: and did that sort of open up a whole new world for you once that happened in terms of voiceover acting
1: well yeah i mean voiceover is great it, it, it's a it's a really cool thing that you can do in your sweatpants and as i found out you can do it from home during the pandemic so it's and it's a it's a really it's such a different way to act because you're not really reacting to other people you have to imagine the reaction you're usually recording it alone and trying to yeah. figure out what the other line's going to sound like and and yes, you still use your body, but it's it really is your voice showing motion and action, and and that's a way different way to approach acting. And I and I love it. It's really a very very lucky that I get to do it.
0: And what about sort of the last kind of twenty years of mentors? Are there people, friends in the comedy or the television business that have been supportive of you? Yeah, your...
1: I mean, what, what what's great about once you once you get to a certain point in your career your friends will start to surpass you in ways in terms of talent and ability ways to execute what they conceive and they become mentors through example like you you know keep yourself very very open and root for your friends root for your friends to succeed because that will inspire you because they're like well they succeeded because they just stopped listening to all their doubt and just did what they wanted to do and if you see enough examples of that it doesn't need to be them showing me that. Like, and here's what I did. You just see it. You And you see when somebody really embraces what they should be doing creatively and really embraces who they are, you see such a profound change in them. And that can be beyond inspiring and really, really help you focus.
0: How about in times where I mean, you've had, obviously, the highest of highs in, in comedy and had multiple now Netflix specials. You've also been very public about Facing tragedy um, yeah. in terms of uh, Alice's mom passing away yeah. uh, about five six years ago. Before getting to the personal side, I want to get to kind of your relationship with your daughter and your daughter's school and hearing that story. Um, yeah, how does comedy play a role when you are facing something like that?
1: I mean, I'm going to say comedy did not play that much of a role. That you know, when something like that happens, you are beyond anything. Creative that's going to help you you got to just rely on your friends and be you know There wasn't I I wasn't funny for a long time because there's I couldn't imagine how to be funny i had forgotten it. So, you know that is having to embrace that sometimes uh, The creative isn't enough to get you out of a funk sometimes it is just therapy and friends and and crying it out Um, there's no other way unfortunately and um so, but it took me a while to embrace that. Like I thought, comedy meant I wouldn't have to face this level of tragedies. No, no one is exempt. No one avoids it. And yeah. so, you you know, e- even if my life had gone swimmingly, comedy in itself is such an ephemeral profession that people that whine about how oh it's changing and so it's like well you signed up to be in a profession where everything constantly changes, and you signed up for the one the one creative art. That has the shortest shelf life of any other of the creative arts film books tv dance sculpture comedy has the shortest shelf life you have to evolve or die and it's difficult and i and i complain about it too sometimes but it's what we signed up for
0: and what about being a a dad you know i have two daughters when something like that happens when you were uh, in i believe the previous special talked about how when your wife passed away is the second worst day of your life and it was really
1: yeah that was
0: a a conversation that you had with your school
1: yeah I mean giving your kids bad news was really rough and I didn't know how to do it and luckily thank god Ravita Bowers who at the time was running um CEE yeah something really she was like you can't because this was the this was near the end of the day when my wife died and I'm still like trying to get take care of my daughter and 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 it was just I couldn't even think and then Ravita said Don't tell her tonight. Don't tell her tonight. And then then you go to sleep. Tell her tomorrow in the sunshine. Play hooky from school. You and daddy are going to stay home. Go do some fun stuff. And then tell her in the middle of the day when the sun is out, she has time in the sunlight to start healing because it's going to be a long time. But don't tell her at night. And I've always remembered that. Tell her in the sunlight.
0: What did that mean to you, kind of getting that support from your school?
1: Just that the... The people that ran that school understood that every kid in that school is a crucial molecule to the kind of the living, breathing body of that institution. That if if one kid is sad, it can either harden other kids or make other kids sad if they don't confront it head on and and talk about it. So knowing that there was a support group of teachers and also kids that were going to be really, really smart about it and be able to talk about it. Any support I could get during that, you know, that was just one of many, many support systems I had. But it was a big one. And and I was, you know, again, forever grateful.
0: I was also touched that your your daughter said, you know, you don't have to go to school on Monday. And she said, Daddy, I want to go to school on Monday.
1: Well, yeah, that was one of the things I heard from a grief counselor was you have to let them lead the way. And I could tell right away, oh, she wants normalcy no matter what. Even if it's a fake version of normalcy in a normal world her mom hadn't died she'd be going to school on monday morning so that's what we're going to do i hadn't slept in four days but i took her to school on monday morning good good
0: uh the other thing i i found touching from one of your recent specials is that after that happened you said you'd sort of resigned to um, kind of living in the gray that you were going mm-hmm. to kind of raise your daughter and experience the joy and adventure of life through her And it kind of resigned yourself to the fact that that you wouldn't necessarily experience it again yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but I had talked to some other people who had lost spouses, and I didn't believe at the time. They're like, yeah, right now you just have to survive, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you will experience joy again. You just don't know where it's going to come from, and you don't know how slow or how fast it will come. And if you see love, run at it. So, you know, that's what I did.
0: Yeah. I love the line. You said, I met this poem of a woman.
1: <laughs> poem of a woman. Yeah. That was Meredith. That's Meredith. That's still Meredith. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Who is a Westlake alumna.
1: Former Westlake. Yeah, exactly. Former Westlake. Yeah, exactly. And t- so tell me
0: about her. And does your wife talk about Westlake in terms of being an all-girls school? Did you think about an all-girls school for your daughter?
1: No, we I, I, We definitely wanted the co-ed experience. We didn't want it to be just girls. And she's very gregarious. She likes meeting all kinds of people. So. I think for Meredith, it's kind of surreal because she goes, "I went here as a little kid, and now here's the campus again, and it's gigantic, and you know, it's so much more expanded." So, yeah, yeah. it's pretty mean. You should have her on an, on another on an episode down the line. Yeah, talk about Westlake. Yeah, exactly. that'd be really interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, talk about what you're kind of working on today. I, I just read that you are going to be in a Ghostbusters sequel. Is that right?
1: I'm in the. There's a new Ghostbusters sequel shooting in London. I'll be leaving next week for that. Wow. And then there's other things that I can't that everything's amorphous right now. So I can't talk about things when they're still being formed. Do you know how that is?
0: I do. I do. Before we go, (laughs) there are uh, a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. We are known for our movies, our food and our climate. So the first question, what is Patton Oswalt's favorite movie?
1: That changes day to day, but today my favorite movie is Alex Cox's Repo Man. I mentioned that earlier. Repo Man was a little movie shot in L.A. in 84. Very bizarre little movie that absolutely should not work, and it works so beautifully. Um, oh, also, um, the other day uh, I we, we showed Alice, the 1976 film Bad News Bears for the first time. And mm. I, I've seen that movie at least 20 times. I had forgotten how absolutely brilliant that movie Hmm. is one of the best movies ever made bad news bears 1976
0: what's your favorite meal in la oh could be a restaurant could be something at home
1: that you yeah i know i know wait a second oh that is a lot my favorite meal in la are the the migas the scrambled egg tacos at four square in los felices Ah. They are, it's perfect. I could eat breakfast almost every meal. So that's, and if if I want to splurge and go really, really crazy, it's Providence on Melrose. Oh yeah. One of the best restaurants in the country.
0: What's your favorite place in LA?
1: The new Beverly Cinema at the corner of Beverly and La Brea. I spent every night there, probably from 1995 until 2000. I still go back. Little Rep Theater, now owned by Quentin Tarantino, shows the best double features on the planet. Mm. So good.
0: Last question. You are the parent of a daughter. I am, as I mentioned, the parent of two daughters. I have a uh, oh. almost four and a half year old and an almost two year old. Um, oh. So littler. Uh, uh-huh. Last question I always ask is what's your best parenting advice? And it can relate to kind of confronting grief and tragedy or it can just be be general.
1: My best parenting advice is and is going to sound very, very general and amorphous and unhelpful. Try to be delighted with all of it, and and especially because what you get, what you're going to get to see, because there's such a thing as epigenetics, where you implant on your kids whether you want to or not, you are going to get to see someone doing a rerun, uh, a retake of something you did when you were little, and you're like, oh, this is, and and you're just there not to go, don't do this, just go. I know what you're going through because I went to this uh, version of the same thing. Let me tell you how I handled it. And if you handled it badly, be honest about how you handled it badly because it gives them the freedom to go, you can screw up every now and then. It's okay. You'll (laughs) learn from it and you'll, you'll roll with it rather than make everything, everything seem like this do or die test. That's no way to go through life. So, you know, be delighted and teach them delight.
0: And talking about how you screwed it up can sometimes make people laugh.
1: Exactly. My (laughs) bread and butter. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> Patton Oswald, thank you so much. This was a delight. Uh, thanks for joining the supporting cast.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man.